Hello, welcome to episode 13 of 10-0, where true crime meets the paranormal. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. So how are we doing? I'm exhausted. Me too. <laughs> Dude, me too. If I'm being honest, I'm freaking exhausted. Oh, God. <sighs> We say is we're both like rubbing the right. crap out of our eyes at this point. I think it's time for an energy drink after this one. Oh, that's why I went and grabbed my Red Bull beforehand. Well, I might have to. Jesus. So. So our true crime fact of the day is from August 6th of 1930 in New York. Supreme Court. Get it together. We're less God. than two minutes in. Less than 45 seconds in. Jesus. Less than 45 seconds in. I can't feel it. Supreme Court Judge Joseph Crater vanished on the streets of Manhattan near Times Square. In the days prior to his disappearance, the judge destroyed many files and had some moved into his personal apartment. He also had 5,000 withdrawn from his accounts. That evening, he left his office, bought a ticket to a Broadway show, and shared a meal with a lawyer friend and a showgirl. They claimed they last saw Crater walking down the street outside the restaurant. News broke of Crater's disappearance on September 3rd. This triggered a huge manhunt and investigation. The suspicious behavior displayed by the judge created speculations that he fled the country with the mistress or had been a victim of foul play. Oh. At his wife's request, he was declared legally dead in 1939. In 2005, New York police revealed that new evidence had emerged in, a, in the case. A woman who had died earlier in the year had left a handwritten note in which she claimed that her husband and several other men, including a police officer, had murdered Crater and buried his body beneath a section of the Coney Island boardwalk. However, the site had already been excavated during the construction of the New York Aquarium in the 1950s, and no one reported a body at that location. Oh. So, Jimmy Hoffa himself. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Gee. For those of you who don't get that reference, Google it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too tired to try to explain it. Uh, What football field is he supposed to be at? Do we know? Do you remember? Oh, God. No. It wasn't the Bears, was it? (sighs) The only one that's like sticking out in my brain right now is Lambeau Field, but I don't think so. Of course you're going to go uh, investigate. Football field is Jimmy Hoffa Giant Stadium. Where the fuck's Lambeau Field and why is that like engraved in my brain right now? I don't know. Can you I'm going to have to Google it. <laughs> you don't know me for Googling Oh, Lambeau Field is Green Bay, I believe. You didn't know what field that was? No. Like, I'm just, eh. That's how how tired I am. I am, like, an avid Bears fan. So, for me, I should know that Lambeau Field is Green Bay. But today, I just, mm -mm. (laughs) It's, like, stuck in my head. But I couldn't remember which team it was for. Oh, God. Are you good? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. You want to go first or you want me to go first? Well, it depends. Do we want to go 
spooky and abusive and like super shitty first off or do we want to go it's also abusive and super shitty super shitty (laughs) on the other hand one just has paranormal um i'll go first okay all right so we're gonna go to spring city pennsylvania okay to a place where multiple ghost hunters and tv shows have visited this place is known by multiple names however the first was the eastern pennsylvania institution for the feeble-minded and the epileptic that's a lot yes any guesses of where we're going okay this building was erected in 1908 what is now known as the Pennhurst state school and hospital or the Pennhurst asylum it was in operation from november 23rd 1908 until it was shut down in 1987 upon opening it was required to house no less than 500 patients at one time Penhurst was placed on just shy of 634 acres and consisted of multiple buildings that continued to be built up until 1971. The initial plans for Penhurst had 13 buildings yeah. and they just kept adding. Was this one that has the tunnels or is that Eastern State? I think that's Eastern State. I didn't see anything about tunnels. Um, Penhurst, they had the actual, like, asylum hospital wing building, and they had, like, the cottages for the females so they wouldn't get pregnant, and then they had housing for the children, and then they started breaking them up into, like, different categories of how mentally ill or physically ill they were. Um, it was just one big mess. It only took four years before Penhurst was considered overpopulated. They were pressured into later admitting immigrants, orphans, and criminals. And they weren't considered patients. They were inmates. Um, no. Mm-hmm. They were inmates. That's not how that I know. Patients classified in three categories. Mental, physical, or dental. Mental being if they were like autistic or epileptic. Physical was if they had any type of deformities or physical type of issues. And dental was good, bad, or treated. Mm-hmm. So, now, there were other multitudes of reasons um, for admission, including having an imperfect gait when you walk, speech impediments, any type of deformity, or even just offensive habits. So you could smoke, and they'd send you off to Penhurst. In, in like, this day and age. Mm. Okay. Um... In 1913, the Commission for the Care of the Feeble-Minded was created by the legislature. It was believed that the disabled were unfit for citizenship 
and were a threat to the peace. One of Penhurst's goals was to remove the disabled from the gene pool by keeping them away from the general population, following the ideas of eugenics. Lovely. Yes. Henry H. Goddard said that every feeble-minded person is a potential criminal. The general public, although more convinced today than ever before that it is a good thing to segregate the idiot or the distinct imbecile, they have not as yet been convinced as to the proper treatment of the defective delinquent, which is the brighter and more dangerous individual. No. In 1968, Bill Baldini made a five-part television news report called Suffer the Little Children. Okay. The darker side of Pinhurst was uncovered. These small segments showed the inmates of Pinhurst rocking, pacing, and twitching. Many of them were severely disabled, either mentally or physically, but others were quite lucid and coherent. However, they were extremely withdrawn into themselves because of overstimulation, because they were in a somewhat frightening place and lacked the need or lacked the needed mental stimulation. The new segments were entitled Suffer the Little Children because these kids that were there, the orphans, the ones that had something wrong and their parents just couldn't take care of them, were made to suffer. They were starving. It was just ridiculous. Um, When one patient was asked by the interviewer what he would like most in the world if he could have anything he ever wanted, the reply was simply to get out of Pennhurst. Documentary footage from the report showed one of the physicians describing how he dealt with particularly, a particularly vicious inmate who had brutalized another. He stated how he asked one of his colleagues which injection he could use to cause the most discomfort without permanently injuring somebody. And then proceeded to give him that injection. In 1983, nine employees were charged with harming patients, with abuse ranging from slapping to beating, and even arranging for patients to harm each other. The Halderman case detailed the patient abuse going on within the hospital, which led to the closure of the asylum. In 1977, the case against the hospital was heard by U.S. District Judge Raymond J. Broderick, and it was determined that Pennhurst's conditions violated the constitutional rights of the patients. If I remember correctly, the way that they were treated violated the Eighth Amendment and the Fourteenth. Um, ten years later, in 1987, the institution was closed, with its remaining 460 patients being discharged or transferred to other facilities. After the closure of Pennhurst, the upper campus was used by the Department of Military Affairs as a veterans' home. It officially opened in 86 as the Southeastern Veterans Center. The Horizon Hall began renovations in 1990 in order to create a nursing facility. It reopened three years later as Coates Hall. 
In 2003, Congressman Jim Gerlach made attempts to establish a federal veteran cemetery at Pennhurst, but the proposal was rejected by the VA. The administration building was partially renovated in 2010, leading the hospital's reopening as a haunted house. Despite its success, it remains controversial among locals and those who are affiliated with Pennhurst, which I could see. So we're going to touch base on the paranormal side. But honestly, there isn't really much to go off of as far as, like, what people have seen. Now that it's a haunted attraction, that's all anyone wants to talk about. Of course. So, obviously we know that Penhurst is known for how miserable the living conditions were and how horrible the patients or inmates were treated, so it shouldn't come as a shock that Penhurst is haunted at all. Weird New Jersey is a ghost hunting team, and they took a tour of Penhurst with Shore Paranormal Research Society, and this is how I got this information, because I'm sure we've all seen ghost hunters. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that they did an episode. Ghost Adventures, Ghost Hunters, I think they've both been here, but... It said that full-bodied apparitions do roam the grounds. Shadows are said to manifest and dissipate as quickly as they appear. Doors will slam open and shut. Chairs will move. Um, during Weird New Jersey's tour, they gathered multiple EVPs, photos, videos, um, some recordings were of disembodied voices saying things like, why'd you come here? I'll kill you. And even, why won't you leave? Um, they witnessed objects being thrown, EMF spikes in buildings that had absolutely no electricity. Um, one investigator even received scratches on the arm while in the Quaker building. Um, in the Limerick building, they saw the apparition of a female in a nurse's uniform and multiple firefighters and police officers can confirm that they saw what they saw. Um, shadow figures were seen multiple times throughout their exploration of the grounds. That's really all that I could find without sitting here taking like 9,000 hours to go through every single (laughs) trash site possible that all says the same thing um but i did find some cool stuff and these five or six excerpts are from people who either had family at penhurst or someone who worked there from people um this one was actually recently posted in may from Scott, does not give a last name. It says, my uncle was administered to Penhurst in 1952 at the age of eight. From the day he was admitted to the day he died, he lasted six days. He went in with a mental disability, but otherwise a healthy eight-year-old. His death certificate, done by a Penhurst physician, says he died of a cardiac problem and a mental deficiency. He was eight and healthy. My grandfather said when they got him, 
His body had bruises all over it. Penhurst covered up a murder, and I hope they all rot in hell. Rest in peace, Robert Anderson, 9-15-1952. This is from Kim, and it was posted in February of 2020. My aunt worked there, and she brought home Aunt Ruthie to live with her and my grandmother. Aunt Ruthie was brought to Penhurst as a child because her parents were deaf and could not handle her. She was in her late 30s, I believe, when she came to stay. Later, she worked in the dietary department of Hanneman Hospital. She was always very quiet, but she was never disabled and never should have been a resident. This is from Joseph Giovanni, and it was posted in 2018. My Aunt Pauline passed away at Penhurst in the year of 1980. She was 35 heavily abused with bed sores they ripped out all of her teeth and kept her in isolation for 24 hours a day she died while under no soup or with no supervision while eating cake or so i was told but i'm looking for more information i was born in 1984 i was not born yet when she passed but my father was 17 at the time and that was his only sister Anyone with any information, please contact. There's no way for these people to find any of these records. I, I looked. There can't be. That sucks. Did you know they didn't keep back your records back then? And the records that they did keep. Who knows how doctored they were. This one is from a lady named Catherine. I don't want to butcher her last name. Um, but it was posted in 2018 as well. In 1968, the year Bill Baldini did the expo on Pinhurst, I worked there for one week. I missed seeing Bill and the crew. I was already gone. I was 19 years old, just out of school, and wanted to help people. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Not because of the patients, but because of the cruelty inflicted on those poor people. I tried to help as much as I could, but I was not prepared for the sights I encountered. I cried every night I went home. After I was injured by a patient, he didn't mean to harm me. My doctor and my husband persuaded me to quit. Before I left, I asked the staff if I saw anything done by the other aides that was harmful to the patients. I told them that I did numerous times. These patients were at the mercy or the lack of the people who had no business being employed to take care of them. Yes, it was challenging for sure. But all they wanted was some love and kindness. The treatment was deplorable. I reported it as such. At 69 now, I never forgot. Now one more. And this was from Greg Hirschberger. And it was posted in 2017. I worked at Pennhurst the summer of 1975 as an intern while taking a summer social work course at Westchester University. I trained severely mental, mentally retarded adults in basic hygiene, such as brushing their teeth and washing themselves. During my internship, internship, Pennsylvania State employees went on strike, and as interns, we went to Penhurst and worked 24 hours a day, living there until the strike ended. This allowed us to see all of the areas of the institution, including locked wards and areas normally not viewed by outsiders. It was an experience I'll never forget. Some of the clients were so disabled, they were blind and unable to care for themselves in any manner. 
needing diapers and crawling on the floor. Some wards were very dangerous, where staff assaults were common due to severe mental disabilities. I graduated from Elizabethtown College in 1970 again worked with mentally retarded adults for a short while in another facility. Conditions had already improved for the disabled at that time. Disclaimer, I hate the word retarded. And had I not been quoting someone, I would have worded that a lot differently. Um, but the way that these people were treated is very ridiculous. Like uh, even I used to work in a nursing home before I came here. It was absolutely horrible how patients are treated. See, my mom works in home health care, and I don't know how she does it because... Like, I've seen how people are treated in homes, and I've seen how people are treated in, like, mental hospitals. And it's the opposite when you're a home health care aide. You're the one being abused. In some cases. Not all. Some. Um, my mom, for instance, was, used to be treated, like, extremely horribly by one of the ladies she took care of. She'd be called names. She'd be spit on. It was it was bad. And she she asked to be moved. That way, you know, she couldn't be taking that kind of abuse anymore. And they basically laughed at her. So she left that home health care job. Wow. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, it's hit or miss at this point. The way people are treated for having a disability is ridiculous. Always. Just fair warning, this does involve children. <sighs> two of the alive variety, two of this, or one of this conflicting variety. Okay. Fair warning. I'll take it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> don't like things that involve, you know. Oh, you ain't gonna like this one. Still cooking babies. Mm. Chris and Shanann Watts met in 2010 in North Carolina. Somehow I knew this was this was going to be the one. <laughs> they were married on November 3rd of 2012. They had two daughters, Bella, four, and Celeste, three. And Shanann was also pregnant with their third child, a son that was to be named Nico. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna get much more out of that. I know. Just because it it involves what it involves. And... Uh, 2013, the family relocated to Frederick, Colorado, and bought their first house. Which is a nice house, by the Which way. Which is a fantastic house. Like, I'm jealous of that house. Right. Not not so much anymore, but um, I, I was jealous of that house. <laughs> not after what happened now. Yeah. Okay, so things start going south. June 14th of 2018, Chris starts seeing Nicole Kessinger behind Shanann's back. Say it with me. Garbage, Garbage human. <laughs> Chris told Nicole that he has kids and that he was still married to Shanann. However, they were in the process of separating, which was not true. Um, 
June 27th of 2018, Shanann takes the girls to North Carolina to see family. They were gone for five weeks, and Chris did not join them until the final week of their vacation. During this time, Chris takes Nicole on multiple dates and even brings her to the house. In later interviews, they would say this was their heavy air quote, diet planning time. Uh-huh. Yeah. If diet planning involves, you know. It was so vigorous that he missed multiple calls from Shanann during that. Yeah. I probably should not have used the word vigorous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Here mean. Here we are. <laughs> July 14th of 2018, Chris takes Nicole on a date to a car museum where he misses five calls from Shanann. During the investigation, it was found that Chris had many inappropriate photos of Nicole on his phone in a secret calculator app. I mean, you don't even have to hide it in a secret app. I mean, if you have an iPhone, it has, you know, incognito folders and shit. Don't ask me how I know that. Um, anyway. Is there something I need to know? Um, no. Okay. Um, July 28th of 2018, Chris and Nicole, the Great Sand Dunes National Park, and stay a few nights at a local campground. July 30th of 2018, Chris leaves town to join his family in North Carolina, but not before leaving Nicole a love letter. Inside were lyrics from Down to Earth by Through the Roots. Um, on to Shanann's disappearance. August 9th of 2018, she leaves her business trip in Arizona. On August 11th, Chris hires a babysitter and takes Nicole on a date to a sports bar in Erie, Colorado. Um, yeah, because, you know, a date with your side piece is more important than your freaking kids. Yeah. (sighs) Anyways, Continue. (laughs) August 13th at 1.40 in the morning, a neighbor's surveillance camera captures Shanann returning home from her business trip. Later that morning, Chris and Shanann get into an argument when he gets up for work. He later told investigators that his wife accused him of cheating, and he strangled her to death. According to Chris, the noise of the fight wakes Bella up, and she watches as Chris rolls up her mother's body and drags it out to his truck. 527 surveillance shows Chris loading up his work truck and leaving home. Chris later told investigators that both girls were sitting on the bench seat in his truck on top of their mother's body. He then drove all three of them to an oil field site that he had been working at. Once they arrived at the oil field, Chris smothers both of his daughters with a blanket and puts their bodies in two separate oil tanks. Chris maintained until November of 2018 that Shanann had killed both the girls. I'm sorry. But there was absolutely no evidence of Shanann being that mentally unstable that she would kill her own kids. Mind you, this whole time, Chris is also texting their realtor. She notices that Shanann has not been giving any input as to requirements they have for a new house. So he nonchalantly tells her that Shanann is missing and that he needs her to pray for Shanann's return. Maybe it's
well. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh because it's funny. It just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it does make me uncomfortable. <laughs> I just... Around 1.40 in the afternoon, Shanann's friend Nicole reports her missing when she can't get a hold of her. Nicole went to the house and tried to find Shanann, or anyone for that matter, at the house, and she was unsuccessful, besides the dog. Uh, Chris called the... I'm sorry, Chris is called to come straight home from work to help find anything out of the ordinary inside the home. He finds Shanann's purse, keys, phone, and wedding ring on her nightstand. Her car is also still in the garage with the girls' car seats. When asked if anything might have happened to prompt this, Chris said no. Last he knew, Shanann was taking the girls to a friend's house, but did not specify which friend. Liar... <laughs> After looking through the house, a neighbor lets police officers come in to look at security footage. This disproves Chris's story that Shanann left with the girls while he was at work. Well, yeah. On August 14th of 2018, Chris starts talking to news outlets, pleading for Shanann to come home or to whoever has her to let her and the girls come home to him. At one point, he pleads, quote, Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, come back. If somebody has her, just please bring her back, everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete without anybody here. He did that to your fucking self. Uh-huh. August 15th, after police discover Chris has a mistress, he fails a lie detector test. At this point, he admits to strangling his wife and burying her in a shallow grave at an oil site. However, he was adamant that he did not do anything to hurt the girls. He maintained that Shanann killed them. Again, no evidence of her being mentally unstable. The only evidence is him being a garbage human and killing his fucking wife. So why wouldn't they suspect him of killing the girls? Chris claimed that he was having an affair and asked Shanann for a separation. He claimed that Shanann had strangled the girls in response to his request, and he then strangled her in a fit of rage and then transported the bodies to the oil field. Chris is immediately arrested on suspicion of three first-degree murder charges and three charges of tampering with a deceased human body. As he should have been. August 16th, Shanann's body is discovered at the oil site, and the girls' bodies are also located inside two of the nearby oil August 21st, Shanann's family appears in court as Chris is arraigned. Chris is denied bail at his first court appearance. At a later hearing, his bail was set at $5 million, and he was required to put down 15% to be released. In case you're wondering, that's $750,000. Still not enough money. I agree. That's still a shit ton of money, though. It is, but that is not <laughs> enough money. I'm sorry, but they should have set his bail at, like, $5 million and made it to where he had to all. pay all of it to get out. November 6th, Chris pleads guilty to all nine counts against him. Five counts of first-degree murder and two extra charges due to the children being under 12. The death penalty was not on the table per Shanann's family's request, 
who did not wish for any further deaths. He also pled guilty to three counts of tampering with a deceased human body and one count of unlawful termination of pregnancy. See, I agree with the family to a point. At this point, he has killed four people. Yeah. I don't care what any anyone has to say. As long as a baby has a heartbeat, it is a fucking human. That is four lives that he took. He deserves to die. I agree. However, me being the asshole that I am, thinks that he also deserves to sit and rot in prison for the rest of his life and die in prison. Be it, you know, from someone shanking him or <laughs> hanging him from his bed. I don't Thank really care. God. But <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> he needs to die in the most gruesome, horrifying way possible. I know. I because he is a garbage human. November of 2018, Nicole, who is his mistress, starts speaking out against him, saying that he lied to her about everything. As in... I mean, he's not wrong. Or she's not wrong. She knew about Shanann. She knew about the pregnancy. She, she knew. knew about the kids. But at the same time, he still lied to her about, you know, the separation. Yeah. The pending divorce. Who knows what else he lied about? Yeah. Because that's what he was good at. He was good at manipulating and lying. Uh, November 19th, he is sentenced to three consecutive life sentences and two concurrent without the possibility of parole. He also received an additional 48 years for the unlawful termination of pregnancy and 36 years for three charges of tampering. Thank God. February of 2019, Chris speaks to three investigators and finally tells them the entire story of how he killed his wife and daughters. Um, September 30th of 2020, Netflix released a documentary on the case called American Murder, The Family Next Door. Chris is currently housed at the Dodge Correctional Institution in Wappen, Wisconsin, to serve out his life sentences. Have you seen that? No, because I refuse to give him the fame that he wants. So there's two things. So they're searching their house. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are no small children in that house when they're recording. Okay. Right. I, I've seen that part. There's a fucking child, child in the back bedroom. In the back bedroom. But here's my thing. You see very dark hair. Yes. Neither of the children have very dark hair. Right. So I don't know if that was... That could have been somebody's kid running around. Right. But you don't see a kid any other time. Right. The second thing, which really fucking creepy. So you're at the neighbor's house. You're looking at surveillance footage. Surveillance footage. If I can talk about it. And he turns the surveillance off and just goes to normal TV. So it shows a bowl with oil dripping down it. And then it goes to a fetus. I just got chills. Tell me that that does not have anything to do with this. Like, that's not them saying, hey. Well, I mean, it probably is. But at the same time, like, fuck you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Like, goddammit. It makes me want to watch it. 
but, think you would like it. But at the same time, like, he's not someone that I wanted to cover simply for the fact that him doing what he did, the way that he did it, he was wanting the fame. He He's one of those narcissistic assholes that you see on, like, shows like Criminal Minds and Law & Order SVU. And I know that's TV and it's not real world, whatever. But it's a real world scenario where you have the killer who wants that recognition. And that, and I feel like that is the main motive behind the reason for him doing things the way that he did. Yeah. And going on live television and being like, look, come home. Come home. I miss you. I want to see the kids. I want to see right. you. You just want the recognition. You just want the clout at that point. You really just use clout. Yes. <laughs> but it's the truth. Clout. And I hate that I'm using like <laughs> newer street words. Street Fucking words. kids. <laughs> well, guys, thanks for hanging in for. This is 13, right? Yeah. <laughs> 13 episodes. <So> 13. <laughs> Don't mind me. Can't keep it together. Sorry. <laughs> Neither of us can at this point. So it's it's going to be a long night. <laughs> uh, follow us on Instagram. It is T-E-N underscore Z-E-R-O underscore podcast. Uh, Facebook is... Uh, ten zero podcast... If I can get my laptop to, you know, cooperate right now, um, I'd be able to tell you. Oh, 10 True Crime and Paranormal Stories from Behind the Headset. Why did I forget that? I, I don't know. You're the one who came up with it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just, have a square site where you can order decals, and I think I'm going to start coming out with some stickers. Um, yeah. If you have any personal stories or things you want us to cover, send us an email at 10 podcast at gmail.com. Yes. I got everything right? I think so. I think. I think we're good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Stay safe. And don't become the next 10-0.